Good evening and welcome to this evening's Gresham Lecture. My uh, lectures this year will look at four families and their estates. The Churchills, who built their family fame and fortune through military service. The Cecils, who constructed theirs through administration. The Scots, who rose through illegitimate royal blood. And the Boleyns, whose success was based on trade. Until the Industrial Revolution, other than the law and the church, these were more or less the only routes to great wealth and honour. What all these families had in common is that they consolidated that wealth and honour in land and buildings. Land, of course, brought with it status, and a great deal of land and a fine residence brought a great deal of status. And despite the ups and downs of the economy, land was also the safest and most sensible place to put your disposable income. The families I have chosen could all be called dynasties because the estates that they owned were the most powerful cogs in a dynastic machine where marriage consolidated land holdings, brought in new money and secured old money. Families that had been enriched by trade bought into the landed aristocracy, and aristocrats who'd become impoverished revitalised their family fortunes by marrying into trade. And this is an excellent place to start this evening, because the Boleyns were a family who invested money from trade in land and consolidated it by a series of stunning marriage alliances, eventually, of course, reaching the pinnacle of social status, marrying into the royal family itself. Now, the story I'm going to tell this evening needs some quite careful introduction, because I'm going to mention a dozen people, and it's very important that we understand their relationship to each other. So, we're going to have a family tree here, um, and we're going to start with the man who effectively founded this dynasty, uh, Sir Geoffrey Boleyn. Now, the Boleyn family were landowners uh, in and around Saul in Norfolk from about the mid-13th century. Geoffrey Boleyn was a Norfolk gentleman who had a really spectacular career here in the city of London. How he got here, we don't know. At first he was a hatter, and then he became a mercer. And as a merchant, he was extremely successful. As a citizen... He was capable and very ambitious. He became sheriff in 1446-7. He became MP for London in 1449, London elector in 1450, an alderman in 1452, master mercer in 1454, and finally, Lord Mayor of London in 1457. The second person on my family tree is uh, Anne, the daughter of Thomas Lord Who and Hastings of Hertfordshire. Thomas Who, uh, her father, was a leading Lancastrian courtier whose extensive family estates were in Bedfordshire and in Norfolk. He was married twice. His first marriage was to Elizabeth Whittingham, uh, a Norfolk uh, gentry lady, and their daughter was Anne Who, born in 1424. There was a second marriage, and there were three more daughters, but no son. So Anne was the co-heiress to great estates. 
How Lord Who met Sir Geoffrey Bolin, we do not know. But in 1437 or 1438, thereabout, Bolin married Who's eldest daughter, Anne, forming the alliance you see on my family tree. So we have a hugely wealthy city merchant marrying an aristocratic heiress. Their first son, uh, named Thomas, died in 1471, and their second son, who you see here, William, became the heir, and he's the third person we now need to meet. Sir William Boleyn made a brief appearance in the City of London, but he was basically set up as a very wealthy landowner in Norfolk, where he was much involved in county affairs. Like his father, he made a spectacular marriage. Uh, here we have it. Uh, he married Margaret, the daughter of Thomas Butler, the Earl of Ormond. Butler, like who, had not succeeded in producing a son. And so, like William's mother, Margaret was the co-heir to great estates. So now two generations of the Boleyns had married aristocratic heiresses, vastly aggrandizing their wealth and, of course, by association, uh, their status. But to return to our dramatis personae this evening, we have to now introduce Sir William and Margaret's son, uh, who was Thomas Boleyn. He was born in 1477. Now, I'm going to have a great deal to say about this man, who became one of Henry VIII's closest friends and the father of Anne, Queen of England. But for now, we need to introduce uh, Elizabeth Howard, uh, the eldest daughter of Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey, who was the heir to the Dukedom of Norfolk. Elizabeth married Thomas in around 1497. Now, unlike the spectacular marriages of his father and grandfather, this uh, marriage brought no great fortune, but did buy Thomas a father-in-law who was a duke. I'm briefly just going to add to my family tree for completeness uh, Thomas's brother, James, because he will appear very briefly in our story. But to complete the family tree, I need to mention the three children of Thomas and Elizabeth, uh, Mary Boleyn, uh, Anne Boleyn, and George uh, Boleyn. So Anne, who we now have on the screen, obviously the star of the show uh, tonight, was descended from not only a former Lord Mayor of London, but much more importantly on her mother's side from uh, an earl, a baron, an earl and a duke. This was a very classy ancestry and, as we now need to understand, an extremely wealthy one, with huge estates and a number of impressive houses. So now let's return to the founding father of the dynasty, Sir Geoffrey, and ask ourselves what was the architectural taste of such a man. He obviously had a house in the city, and he presumably had a manor house in his home county of Norfolk. But as his wealth grew and he became an elder statesman in the city, it was time to invest in land. And indeed, this is exactly what he did, buying an estate in Norfolk in 1452 and in Kent in 1461. 
And what's fascinating is that the two principal houses in these estates were remarkably similar buildings. They were both moated castles built in the, 40, uh, the, in the 1380s or 1390s by former soldiers and royal servants. Now, Geoffrey was an exceptionally wealthy man. He could afford to lend the king £1,246 at a time when it was absolutely certain that he'd never get it back. So he could have afforded to buy an estate with a modern house or perhaps an estate where he could build a new house. But his choice to to buy these two late 14th century castles must have been entirely deliberate and reflected a taste for a military style of architecture. This could perhaps be a partially a reflection of the political instability and violence of the Wars of the Roses, but equally, and I think more likely, it reflected a desire to present himself not as an arriviste, but as an establishment figure and as a knight. So, in 1452, Sir Geoffrey purchased one of North Norfolk's most valuable manors, Sir John Fastolf's Blickling Hall. Fastolf, famous to history as the inspiration uh, for Shakespeare's character, although the real man was nothing like the uh, man in the play, uh, he was immensely rich, and he had invested the profits of his military exploits in land and buildings, especially in Norfolk. He spent some £24,000 buying and improving manors, amongst which was the house at Blickling, which he bought in 1432. Fastolf, without heirs, sold it to Berlin for a cash sum and an annuity. Well, here is Blickling Hall today, in my view, one of the most gorgeous sites anywhere in England. We're told from the guidebook that it was built by Sir Henry Hubbard, in uh, about 1618. But investigations by a series of historians um, have uh, shown that Hubbard, in fact, modernised and modified an existing house. And the core of what you can visit today with your National Trust card already existed when he bought the property in 1616. And what is quite certain is that various features of the house, such as the long gallery, and you see the wing of it there, um, plus various uh, windows, which you can see in this view of uh, 1725, uh, unquestionably date from the period of the Berlin ownership. Fastolf's Blickling had been built and subsequently owned by military men and courtiers, and perhaps Geoffrey hoped that some of their luster would wear off on him. So that's Blickling. The second country house he bought was Hever. This was purchased in 1461 from William Fine's Lord Say and Seal. Hever Castle as it stands today, as you see it there, was built in 1383 by a man called John de Cobham and was one of a number of moated stone castles built in the years around 1380 in reaction to the violence and uncertainty of the age. Hever's square plan, which you see here, was absolutely the norm for the time and paralleled by dozens of other uh, castles of the same period, perhaps also including uh, uh, the original house at Blickling. 
It was driven by the joint needs of domesticity and defence, and its plan was completely standard, with a great gatehouse, opposite which was a great hall, and up a staircase uh, on this side, on the west here, the family lodgings, which were essentially in just three rooms. Hever was a small, neatly planned, fortified house, the residence of a wealthy landowner, not a great magnate. So why did Geoffrey buy it? Well, two reasons, I think. First of all, and very importantly, he needed a country house much closer to London than Blickling, which, and I live in Norfolk, so I can say this, is in the middle of nowhere. And secondly, I think he bought it because it was situated in the heavily wooded weald, which was very good hunting ground. Now, though Geoffrey may have been uh, happy with the external appearance of Hever, he actually decided to modernise the interior. And you can see here that this uh, original great hall was a vast room, no fireplace, uh, a hearth in the middle, smoke goes up through the, um, the rafters of the roof. What Geoffrey Berlin uh, does is he modernises it by putting big windows in the north wall, a fireplace, he divides the Great Hall to make it smaller, making a private ground floor room with a fashionable bay, bay window before going up the stairs to the three uh, family rooms on the first floor. Uh, here is um, a 19th century uh, uh, painting showing the Great Hall at um, Hever with the big fireplace that was put in by Geoffrey um, uh, Berlin. Now, all of this we can work out from the surviving fabric at Hever, and I'm extremely grateful to the present owners of Hever Castle for the opportunity to examine the building in detail. But to get to this level of knowledge at Blickling will take quite a lot more work, although I think it could be done. Dis disentangling the changes that may have been made by Geoffrey, William, uh, and his grandson Thomas might never be possible. But what is clear is that the original 14th century fortified manor was hugely extended by the Berlins into a double courtyard house. Now, we don't know, but it is quite possible that the original house was very much like Hever, a gatehouse and a great hall, and that the Berlins built on this big uh, extra bit, including a long gallery on the first floor above here. And that's what you get today, two courtyards double courtyard house. Uh, these uh, houses uh, were um, not uh, um, particularly uh, uncommon, but the people who owned them uh, were uh, very rich. They were very prestigious having these two courtyard properties. So uh, Blickling in the Berlin period was a large and very prestigious house. I suspect that much of the extension of Blickling was actually undertaken by uh, Thomas or perhaps his brother James because uh, it contained this long gallery and long galleries are really only common in these houses from the 1520s onwards. And I suspect that Geoffrey lived in a, a, a smaller house, um, a more baronial house, if you like, uh, where he lived in splendour as a knight rather than a merchant. Architecture, you see, holds a mirror to self-image. 
Well, substantial parts of Blickling and Heaver remain to tell us something of Geoffrey's tastes, but we don't know anything really about the third house that this family owned at this period, and this was Luton Hoo in Bedfordshire. And so here's a map. We're going to build up the various uh, houses. Here we've got uh, Blickling, here we've got Heaver, and here is Luton Hoo, uh, which uh, was inherited uh, uh, into the family by Anne, as a portion of her estates from uh, her father, Thomas Lord Who and Hastings, who had died in 1455. It must have been a very big house, as Lord Hastings was a major figure, uh, and we know that the Boleyns used it as a base much closer to London than uh, Blickling, that was 100 miles further up the road. Well, this brings me very neatly onto the second generation of the family, uh, Sir William Boleyn. Uh, William was very active in county manors, uh, matters, uh, occupying most of the senior uh, posts in Norfolk at one time or the other. Uh, but he also, as far as we know, uh, spent some time um, in Kent. Uh, from the uh, 1460s, he was also renting um, Who before he actually inherited it, as well he might because it was only 30 miles for, from London. But despite this, Norfolk was still the base for the family. And uh, Sir William's son and heir, Thomas Boleyn, was probably born at Blickling in 1477. When, at the age of 20, in 1497, he married Elizabeth Howard, it's likely that his father, William, moved out of the ancestral seat at Blickling and made his principal residence at Luton Hoo, leaving uh, Thomas... Uh, his son and heir and his new wife, uh, Elizabeth, uh, to preside at Blickling. And we kind of know this because when Henry VII went on a big uh, progress to Norfolk in 1498, it was Thomas who received him at Blickling and not his father. And Thomas lived at Blickling for most of the period between 1497 and 1505. And this means that it was there in around 1500, that their daughter, Anne, was born. Now, one of the features of English uh, country aristocratic life was the centrality of the parish church. English aristocrats didn't want to be buried in distant abbeys or cathedrals like their French counterparts. They wanted to be buried and indeed baptised in their own proprietary churches, which were almost always adjacent to their houses. And it was thus in this font, in St Andrew's Church, next to Blickling Hall, that Anne Boleyn was almost certainly baptised. In a church that contained the burials of her ancestors. And when you go there, the church is normally open when you visit the house. You can see the brasses of um, um, Anne's um, ancestors uh, in the chancel. In 1501, the ageing Sir William Boleyn granted uh, Hever and his other Kentish properties uh, to some trustees for his lifetime to hold for his daughter-in-law, Elizabeth, after his death. And so in 1505, when Sir William died, Elizabeth Boleyn, Thomas's wife, owned Hever, and Thomas, uh, her husband, owned Luton Hoo. Thomas was also left eight manors in Norfolk, 
but uh, he was required to pay his mother a pension and allow uh, his mother to continue living at Blickling for the rest of her life. And as his mother outlived him, Thomas's residence at Blickling was over. Well, in 1505, when he comes into all this property, Thomas uh, was 28 years old. He was already a figure at the court of Henry, VIII, uh, Henry VII and was well positioned in 1509 to rise rapidly in the service of Henry VIII. He became uh, a favoured companion of the young king in the tilt yard and in the hunting field, and in due course, he became one of the king's most trusted diplomats, and in this role spent considerable time abroad. In 1519, he spent a year at the court of Francis I of France, and uh, he followed that with uh, his attendance at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, which you see in the famous painting here, in which he was a very important figure. Thomas was in France again in 1521 and 1527, and in 1522-3 he was in Spain as the king's ambassador. Now, during some of this time when Thomas was abroad, it is possible that Elizabeth and her children stayed at Hever. This would make a lot of sense. It's very close to the coast and it's close to London. It's complete speculation, but it does seem that in the early 16th century, there were some improvements made at uh, Hever that would have made it more comfortable for Elizabeth and her young children. Uh, the medieval house on the first floor had, uh, this is just another random building with cr a crown post roof, but had uh, exposed ceilings with these crown post roofs. These may have looked very handsome, but by the reign of Henry VIII, they were very old-fashioned. And therefore, the family rooms at Hever were sealed over with uh, plaster ceilings, um, making the house um, uh, more modern and presumably uh, warmer. But Hever was very small. The castle essentially had a single principal first floor suite of rooms. And by the time Elizabeth uh, inherited Hever, she had three young children. Mary, born in 1499, Anne in 1500, and George in 1504. Now, of course, the children of noble families were often farmed out to wet nurses and later put into uh, the households of their so social superiors, which, of course, is what happened to Anne. But um, in 1505, Anne was five, Mary was six, and George was only one. And we can have expected them have all to be living with their parents, with their nurses and other attendants. And together with the household servants of Thomas and Elizabeth, it's a bit problematic to uh, regard Hever as being large enough uh, uh, to be the principal family home. And indeed, it need not have been. Because in 1515, the Boleyns finally came into Thomas's mother's estates. Because if you remember, Sir William had married the co-heir of Thomas Butler, the seventh Earl of Ormond. And when he died in 1515, two of the largest houses in Essex fell into the Boleyn property portfolio. New Hall near Boreham and Rochford Hall near Rochford in South End. So these are the two Essex houses that they got uh, in 1515. Now, the manor of Rochford had been owned by James Butler, Earl of Wiltshire and Ormond, 
who had uh, forfeited it uh, after being on the wrong side uh, in the Battle of Toten in uh, 1461. His brother, uh, uh, Thomas, succeeded in getting uh, the title and the estates restored to him in Henry VII's first parliament. Uh, and uh, Thomas then went on to have a very successful career at court, serving as Elizabeth of York's Lord Chamberlain, and then uh, from 1509 as Chamberlain to Catherine of Aragon. And he used Rochford Hall extensively, uh, uh, living there much of the time. It was a substantial house. Today, it is a golf club. And uh, visiting it uh, made me almost want to take the sport up, but perhaps not quite. It's in a very beautiful position. And as at Blickling and Hever, the church can be seen from the windows of the hall. And Thomas Butler uh, rebuilt the West Tower of the church. Here are his arms over the door, uh, proclaiming not only the status of the church, but also um, the, the links between the house and the church, which I've already um, talked about at Blickling. Now, unfortunately, the surviving remains of the house have been cruelly defaced by uh, fires, bombs, and philistines. And despite a actually very imaginative restoration in 1987, working out what we have there is not that easy. And I think, actually, that most of the house that remains today post-dates the Berlins, and was actually built by the fabulously wealthy and appropriately named Richard Rich in the 1550s. It is just possible that this very charming chapel uh, in the church was built uh, by the Berlins as a private chapel, um, and it is possible that Anne herself was on her knees in there um, when she stayed. But uh, Looking at the plan of the house, and this is just very schematic, you can see that if you were building a brand new house, you probably wouldn't have built a, a range out at, at that angle. And so it is likely that what we have today in the golf club does contain at its heart the house uh, lived in by the Berlins. This uh, reconstruction that hangs on the wall in the golf club um, shows it in the 1550s, um, I don't think it was as large as that then, but it was unquestionably a house of some size and importance. Now, Thomas, uh, who uh, lives here, uh, had been made a Knight of the Garter in 1523, and this is his uh, brass in Hever Church, and you can see him wearing his garter robes, his garter badge, um, very, very proud of that. Uh, in 1525, his stock rising further still, he was created Viscount Rochford. His title wasn't Blickling, which was his ancestral home. It wasn't Hever, which his grandfather has bought, or wasn't Who. It was taken from his grandparents' estate in Essex, because it's his grandparents' lineage that led to the title, uh, as his grandfather uh, on his mother's side, of course, was the Earl of Ormond. But this was an Irish peerage. Um, and although uh, he sat in uh, the English Parliament with a rather strange title, Thomas Ormond de Rochford Chevalier, it wasn't a proper English title. And so Thomas's uh, creation as Lord Rochford uh, was the first usage of it in the English period. And this stepping stone, which he took from this house, 
was uh, um, the next step to his elevation in December 1529 to the hereditary title of the Earldom of Ormond. Um, And at this point, his son George became Viscount Rochford. Now, um, as well as uh, 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 Rochford Hall, Thomas Butler had also been granted the former royal estate of Newhall Borum in Essex by Henry VII, which actually was really very, very close to um, Rochford. Um, And he was granted uh, a licence to rebuild it in 1491. Now, we don't know exactly what the butlers uh, built there, uh, but when he died in 1515, Newhall passed to Thomas Boleyn. This was another very substantial house. This is a plan of it in the 18th century, and you can see by this stage it had five courtyards. And certainly the core of the mansion here uh, existed in uh, Sir Thomas's um, time. But to, by 1515, this is a, a view of the, the entrance front, that's this front here. By 1515, the Berlins really did not need another vast mansion. They already had Who, they had Hever, they had Rochford, as well as uh, 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 um, Blickling and a house in London. Thomas was at Henry VIII's side the whole time, and he must have suggested that the king might be interested in seeing it. In fact, the king had already seen it because he had stayed there with Butler in August 1510. But in June 1515, the king visited Newhall twice, each time staying for a couple of days. This was not only a fine mansion, but perhaps much more importantly, it was sited in the middle of a well-stocked park, and it was probably this that excited Henry VIII more than anything else. And so, in February the following year, Henry bought the estate from Sir Thomas Boleyn for £1,000 and immediately launched a campaign of rebuilding it and refurnishing it. But turning this Berlin mansion into a royal palace was not the end of its history in the Berlin fold, because in 1528, George Berlin, Thomas's son and Anne's brother, was made keeper of the house, giving him a right to live in it when the king was not there. And so although the house had been sold by the Boleyns to Henry VIII, um, the, uh, the eldest son was still allowed to live there. Quite a good deal. And this good deal was all part of the structure of keeperships. Uh, keeperships of royal houses was one of the big perks of royal service. And in fact, Thomas Boleyn uh, also won a keepership in 1521. That year, uh, the Duke of Buckingham had been attainted uh, and Penshurst Place had fallen to the crown. Uh, 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 Henry granted the keepership of the house to St. Thomas, to, to Sir Thomas. Henry visited in September 1538, but otherwise the house was just left to Berlin to live in. And it is likely that he uh, resided there, and there is the great hall that he would have known very well, because if you go into Penshurst Church next door, you will find this little brass, 
which is a brass to uh, one of Thomas's sons, a little boy called Thomas, who died uh, at Penshurst and was buried um, in the Sydney Chapel in the Church of St John the Baptist there. So, by 1521, the Boleyns had reached the pinnacle of their wealth. Let me just recap for a moment, and you'll see how they amassed an extraordinary number of important houses. So, Geoffrey Boleyn buys Blickling and Hever, and he marries into who? His son, uh, William, marries uh, into a family and gains Rochford and New Hall, as well as uh, Hever and Who, and of course Blickling that remained his family home. Thomas uh, um, has, uh, through, his, um, uh, um, through his mother, uh, has Newhall um, and Rochford. In addition to Who, he gains Penshurst from Henry VIII, and he gets Hever um, uh, through his uh, wife. And of course, uh, his brother, James Boleyn, still has Blickling. This land, this property, was very much the background to their lives. These estates pumped cash into their pockets. The great houses were places to entertain and to hunt. But Thomas, when he was not travelling the continent, was required to be almost continually at court. In uh, Christmas 1514, for example, the whole Boleyn family were involved in celebrations at court, including George, Thomas's elder son, who was then a page to the king. Uh, Sir Thomas became treasurer to the household, and to fulfil this uh, duty, he had to live in London. Uh, he had a house in London, but much more importantly, he had lodgings at court. In fact, when you look through the royal building accounts, you can uh, work out that Thomas and Elizabeth had lodgings at the following royal palaces. Hampton Court, Richmond, Greenwich, where Thomas's rooms were directly beneath the King's Privy Chamber, at Windsor, at Woking, at Woodstock, and at Whitehall, where the Berlins, as we shall hear in a second, were amongst the first courtiers to have lodgings there. In fact, Thomas and Elizabeth had lodgings at whichever house the king was staying at. So now we need to turn to Anne. Anne, I, I hope, as I have shown, was no country bumpkin. When she made her entry into the English court in 1521, she'd lived in France for seven years. She had parents who had access to three very large houses, as well as their hunting lodge at Hever and lodgings at court. Her sister Mary was the king's mistress, and her father was one of the king's best friends. Fluent in French, a graceful dancer, she could play several musical instruments, she knew about books, clothes, and art. She was strong-willed, and she was opinionated. Added to this, she came from an extremely worldly-wise family, and we've seen that she was brought up by parents who were heavily engaged in property transactions, estate management, and building projects. She was used from, to moving uh, from one house to another, with different residences being used at different times of the year. And as Henry VIII's passion for Anne developed, they faced a problem. Catherine of Aragon held all the architectural cards. 
it was very easy for her to exclude Anne from the royal palaces. Nevertheless, uh, Anne gradually acquired her own base, independent from her parents, inside Henry VIII's houses. As early as May 1527, only a year after the king's infatuation began, Anne had her own independent lodgings at Greenwich Palace, Henry's principal residence. By March the following year, she had her own rooms below the king's at Windsor Castle. And in 1531, the king bought a farm near Greenwich for Anne, perhaps as a place for hoped-for trysts. But all this was very unsatisfactory, and so Henry asked Woolsey to arrange for a separate residence for her. Now, we don't know what Woolsey suggested, but Anne, strong-willed and clear-minded, didn't like his suggestion, preferring to make her own arrangements and renting the house of another courtier. Again, we don't know which house this was, but the king found it embarrassing and told her that it wasn't right that he should visit his lady lodged in the house of a servant. Nevertheless, Anne was set up in an establishment of her own in the city of London. These very elaborate and complicated arrangements that had to be put together for Henry and Anne uh, to uh, um, live in the same place meant that they both longed for a place of their own. And in 1529, it became clear that this was going to be York Place, the house of Cardinal Wolsey, uh, of course, the building that was renamed uh, Whitehall after Henry VIII took it over. On 22nd of October, 1529, Wolsey surrendered all his property to the king, and just two days later, Henry and Anne Boleyn, accompanied by her mother, uh, Elizabeth, arrived by barge at York Place uh, at the landing stage here. So they came down the river. This is the um, Whitehall Palace, but the core of its York Place, arriving at its landing stage, um, and inspected um, the house. Uh, that December, uh, Henry and Anne spent Christmas together at Greenwich. We know, because we have the uh, royal building accounts, uh, that uh, the royal architect, James Needham, was summoned to their chambers. And closeted away uh, with the royal couple, Needham helped them conceive an astonishingly ambitious building project. It was for a huge new palace, which you more or less see on the screen here, which didn't only contain vastly uh, enlarged royal lodgings, but a recreation centre and extensive gardens. Next to this would be a hunting park, which you can see the beginnings of here, and sited in the hunting park was to be a satellite palace, St. James's Palace, just off the screen in the top left-hand corner here, which was destined to be the future residence of the son and heir that they both felt convinced that Anne would bear the king. In October 1532, Anne and Henry went to France together to meet King Francis I. During that visit, they probably slept together for the first time. And back in London on the 17th of December, when Henry made a visit of inspection to Whitehall, he knew that Anne was pregnant. The royal lovers were at Greenwich for most of that January, but early on the morning of the 24th, 
Henry slipped into a specially prepared and newly matted barge with Anne and a couple of attendants and made for Whitehall. They disembarked at this landing stage, which you see a uh, Elizabethan drawing of now, made their way through the galleries to the gatehouse, the Holbein Gate, and in this room, above the gate, uh, finally the knot was tied and Henry uh, and Anne were man and wife. The choice of Whitehall was deliberate and, I would say, symbolic. This was a new start for the king and a new start for the country. A new queen, uh, a male heir, and a modern, up-to-date palace replacing the ancient palace of Westminster. Soon, Anne was not just wife, she was queen. This meant that she needed to be provided with a jointure. Now, a, a jointure was a portfolio of estates um, that yielded um, an income for the queen because uh, the queen had a completely independent uh, stream of uh, money from uh, the, the king and from the state. She also needed a completely independent suite of houses because as the king moved on his own itinerary around the country, so the queen moved on hers. And so this jointure really uh, contained two things, uh, land for investment and uh, uh, buildings, houses, that she would actually live, uh, uh, use and, and live in. And this was standard practice for a queen's, uh, queen consort. Uh, what queens did when they were assigned their jointure is they would then um, establish a council or a uh, commission of advisors. And the queen's council would then manage the jointure lands, the lands that were kept for uh, the queen's income uh, in her interest. Now, Anne was given um, a number of grants of property, and in April 13, uh, 1533, all the estates and houses of Queen Catherine were um, given to her. And what I just did was I literally just took a photograph of the um, calendar for uh, the, the year 1533. So this is the summary of the original document which lists the uh, manors that were transferred from Catherine of Aragon to uh, Anne Boleyn. And this is just one page. So a vast amount of land um, uh, transferred to um, uh, uh, Queen Anne as her jointure. And at that uh, moment, um, Anne uh, actually became a greater landowner than Catherine, and in fact, a greater landowner than any other of Henry VIII's queens. And her income at this point was probably greater than any other member of her family so far. And that uh, is saying quite something. So Anne, uh, uh, as was traditional, immediately appointed a council. Uh, uh, instructions were given uh, very specifically to survey all these lands. So she immediately commissioned surveyors to go out and visit uh, all these properties and to review the terms of every single lease and every single um, rental. Anne was no backseat driver. This young woman, we must remember, was born into a family whose wealth and status was built on the careful husbandry of property. 
she personally considered the terms of many of the leases. And we know that in 1534 to 5, uh, they yielded her an income of 5,056 pounds, 16 shillings and 11 pence. This actually, and amazingly, was more than she spent that year putting her personal accounts into surplus. This is the end of the story of the Berlin estates. Father, daughter, brother and uncle between them were now one of the richest families in the kingdom. They had reached the pinnacle of the social order. Anne, as queen, lived up to the reputation of her ancestors as an acquisitive exploiter of land for wealth and status. She was also, and this is a very important point, the last in the line of Berlin women who made all the running. We've got to remember that four generations of this family were made by marriage and by the estates, the status and the connections that the wives brought. And there's a real sense in which the Berlin family was built by women. But tonight, we don't end with that point. We end with the king. Because up until he fell in love with Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII was not very interested in building. Certainly, uh, he owned many properties. He uh, inherited more than 20 from his father, um, Henry VII. But if you look at the uh, building works in the first part of Henry VIII's reign, they're all, all to do with the interests of a, uh, a teenage aristocrat. He's interested in tilt yards. He's interested in castles. He's uh, interested in, in building a factory to build armour. He's interested in stables for his horses. In no sense was he a great patron of architecture or a, a monarch who was um, interested in building for its own sake. It was only with Anne at his side that he first embarked on a major architectural project. And of course, Henry VIII later became one of the greatest royal buildings ever. At his death in 1547, he, o he owned over um, 70 houses and had spent probably more than £1 million in uh, Tudor money on building and furnishing them. And Whitehall, which became one of the largest palaces in Europe and was the headquarters of the English monarchy for 150 years, was conceived as much by Anne as it was by Henry. And in this way, it became the greatest of all the Berlin houses. Well, next time, on November the 4th, I shall be talking about the uh, Cecil family, a family uh, who rose to uh, uh, enormous wealth and success through an entirely different route. But for now, we have some questions. Thank you very much for a wonderful lecture this evening, Simon. Um, I do have a few questions from the online audience. The first uh, asks, Aside from the fact that Thomas most likely enlarged Blickling, given the relatively small size of Hever, are there any thoughts as to whether the latter could have been more of a hunting lodge, or was it indeed seen as another primary residence? Well, that is a, a, is a very good question, because, of course, 
One of the really wonderful things about Hiva, and I guess many people who are listening have been there, is that you walk into a building that is recognisably the building that the Bolin family and Anne herself uh, would, uh, if they were to come back alive today, would, would entirely recognise. But as I did make the point, it was, it was and is a very small house. And uh, I think it's impossible, really, to imagine it being a, a major residence. I think uh, the questioner is right. It was a hunting lodge, but it was also very, very useful at the period when Henry and Anne were in this very tricky relationship where the king was married, she had to preserve her honour, she couldn't be seen to be giving in to the king. It was very close to Greenwich. Um, it was the closest of all the Berlin houses to Greenwich. Um, and Henry VIII was able to uh, arrange his itinerary so he could ride out from Greenwich and be in the vicinity of Hever. Hever, very small, you couldn't have a lot of servants there, so it's actually very private. And so it was sort of the ideal place, really, if you were going to be having a slightly illicit affair with somebody, because uh, if you had gone to Who or you'd gone to Rochford, it would be stuffed full of dozens, hundreds of servants, and it would all be very public. So yes, uh, I think the questioner is right, it was a hunting lodge, but it was also a, a very important um, part of the jigsaw of um, Henry and Anne Boleyn's court courtship. Thank you. Um, our second question is about Thomas Butler. And the question is, did Thomas Butler have any links to Ireland? Oh, yes, he, he absolutely did. Um, he was um, an Irish peer, and his principal lands were in Ireland. Um, and in fact, there was a, um, a huge, long-running dispute about his title, um, because there was uh, another branch of the family who felt that they uh, should inherit the, um, the, the earldom of Ormond. And it was only after um, a tremendous wrangle and um, a, a lot of time and effort and legal cases that, uh, that Thomas eventually became the Earl of Ormond. Um, and uh, as I said, that um, Irish title was then translated actually into, into an English one, and for the first time it became an English one. But the family was Irish, absolutely. Thank you. Um, how do we know which room Henry and Anne were married in, as the sources appear to say just at Whitehall? Oh, um, no, I think the sources do say a bit more than that, and I think we um, can be pretty sure that the, um, the room that is described is the, uh, is the room in the Holbein Gate. Um, and uh, um, if you read my excellent book called Houses of Power, um, now in paperback, very reasonably uh, sold at all Waterstones, you will see the evidence um, um, set out, including the footnotes, and you can check for yourself whether you agree with me or not. There's a further question about Hever. As Hever was eventually given to Anne of Cleves, I'm always intrigued as to why it wasn't necessarily one of her favourite houses. Was there a reason for this? Was it to do with its design? Was it not considered modern by then? Yes, well, of course, this is a very um, interesting uh, point that um, uh, Hever is eventually uh, sold to the king, and um, the king then uh, makes it part of the jointure of Anne of Cleves. So it's um, handed on to a, another one of his, his queens. Um, and the, uh, the Berlin estates in, um, in Kent were not just the manor of Hever. 
there were a number of other manors attached to it. And so um, as it went to Anne of Cleves, it wasn't uh, just the castle that we know, it was uh, a number of um, other manors attached to it. So it's quite a valuable um, gift. Um, I'd spent quite a lot of time actually looking at uh, the evidence for Anne of Cleves, uh, uh, how much she used that house. And actually, I think she used it quite a lot more than we, we think. There are quite a lot of letters uh, dated there. And there has been a German scholar who has um, been looking at some of the letters in Cleves itself, and, um, to, which she wrote to her brother. Um, and quite a lot more of those are dated at um, Hever Castle. So I suspect that um, Anne of Cleves probably used Hever a bit more than we um, currently imagine. This is rather a larger question. Oh, golly. <laughs> <laughs> um, could it be said that Henry only married Anne for fixing relations with France? Oh, gosh. I don't know. That's well, um, an interesting, uh, a very interesting question. Um, uh, I think he, he married Anne because he wanted a male heir and because she was an incredibly um, attractive woman. Um, and I must say, having spent quite a long career looking at Tudor buildings, particularly royal buildings and the royal court, you know, I kind of fancy the thought of Anne Boleyn as well. I mean, she's was clearly quite an amazing person, um, quite sort of magnetic. Um, so I don't think there were sort of uh, macro, global, political uh, um, motivations behind it. Uh, unquestionably, unquestionably behind it was this very strong sense that God was punishing him um, for uh, a marriage that was uh, contrary to the book of Leviticus, that uh, the reason he couldn't have a son was because there was uh, um, displeasure from on high, and uh, that had to be fixed by um, marrying someone who was legitimate and hopefully would produce a son. But, of course, they didn't know about genes. Um, and, you know, mm. it, that's really what the problem was. And the final question, um, what, ap what actually happened to the estates upon Anne's fall from grace? Well, um, what is uh, interesting is that, well, first of all, Anne's own personal estates, obviously, finito, that they just uh, go back to the crown. Um, that is what happens with a queen consort. They uh, revert to the crown and then they're granted out. In fact, many of Anne's lands were granted out to subsequent uh, queens. Not as many, but many of them were. Um, the, her brother George, uh, of course, is implicated in her fall. He loses his head. And so uh, there is no male heir for Thomas. But in fact, Mary uh, gets Rochford uh, and she has Rochford Hall. But Thomas um, uh, and Elizabeth they retain their estates, and the Boleyn family um, retain most of the buildings that we've been talking about. Um, and gradually, over the years, they are alienated um, and sold um, uh, to various other people. And of course, each of the houses I have, have talked about were subsequently bought by other great aristocrats and uh, extended and enlarged, which of course gives people like me a job to do to try and work out what they were actually like uh, in the 1520s. 
That's great, Simon. Thank you very much. Um, I also wanted to thank our audience for your attendance this evening. Um, we're very grateful to you. We do apologize for the technical issues in the middle of the stream. Um, in spite of intense testing today, we're still obviously encountering some teething problems. So thank you very much for your patience with us as we work to resolve those. We will be sending you a link to the video and transcript very soon. Please do join us tomorrow for a lecture on radio in the 78 era, 1920 to 1948, and that's being presented by Jeremy Summerlee, our visiting professor of music history. Good evening. <laughs>